Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations with artists, I invite you to come visit David's Werner Gallery exhibitions in person. We're located in New York, Los Angeles, London, Paris, and Hong Kong. New exhibitions open each month. Plan your visit at davidswerner.com. Hi, I'm Ira Sachs, and I'm a filmmaker. From David Werner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. The reason I respond so strongly when people say, oh, you didn't make a cliched film is like, I'm up against my heroes who are my monsters who are better than me. So I'm comparing myself not to people who are worse than me. I'm comparing myself to Pialat. I'm comparing myself to Godard, and I'm never going to f- succeed. I'm aiming higher, and I will fail, but that's like, so, so in my mind, you got to aim really high. I'm Helen Molesworth, your host for this season. Every episode features a conversation with artists, curators, writers, designers, philosophers, filmmakers, and musicians about what it means to make things today. Hey, everybody. In this episode, I got to speak to one of my favorite directors, Ira Sachs. His latest film, Passages, won wide acclaim for its piercing look at human vulnerability and desire. And his 2010 film, Last Address, is actually one of my favorite films. I love discussing Ira's many influences from Jean-Luc Godard to Chantal Ackerman. I really enjoyed taping this episode, and I hope you guys enjoy listening to it. Ira, I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. I wanted to talk to you about your film, Passages, which... Mm -hmm. I saw this past summer in a tiny little theater in Provincetown, Massachusetts, which is a gay town, which meant I saw your uh, queer film with a queer audience in a queer town. So in a nutshell, Passages is about two married men. One is a film director and one appears to be a kind of master printer, a printmaker. The filmmaker uh, ends up having an affair with a female high school teacher. Uh, And there, this infidelity, if it is an infidelity, causes a break and a rift in the intimacy between these three people. Mm -hmm. And Thomas, the figure of the filmmaker, is one of the sexiest people I've seen on the screen in a long time. And he is a narcissist of like the kind of highest order, it seems to me, in as much as his desires are all-encompassing to him. He pursues them with abandon. And it struck me watching the film that there was also something about it that was about this personality type of our moment, which is the narcissist, a casual perusal of any internet you know, give yourself 10 minutes on the internet and you're going to come up with the narcissist and toxicity. I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about this quality of this intense narcissist at the center of this film. Mm. Well, thank you for that. It was interesting. It's always interesting to hear how people describe a film, like what they see, what, what, what sticks with them, what, what becomes their narrative version of something you've made that has a lot of different entry points and exit points. I, I don't really, I don't use that term to describe the character because it seems to, 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 to me not be 
totally evocative of of a certain quality of Tomas, which is very interested in everybody else. Mm. Um, the narcissists I know have a need for always to be um, sort of propped up and made important, which I don't feel with this character. I think he's a he's a hungry man. <laughs> he wants everything and more. You know, I wrote the film with my co-writer Mauricio Zacharias during the tail end of the Trump presidency. And, you know, I'm not Trump and I'm not Tomas, but I'm there. I'm certainly a part of this this character in the sense of, well, he's a filmmaker and I'm a filmmaker. And I felt actually what was kind of the key was this feeling during the pandemic that I had a lot in my life and I somehow didn't think it was enough. Mm. And I think this very male quality of, of believing that we deserve more and that um, there's never there's never an end to that that want. So I, I think Tomas is is obviously the biggest character in the film. I mean, he sort of takes up the space, and it's his story, and, and and he's the protagonist. But but there's a lot of different competition for people who are who are willing to make choices that benefit themselves and not others. I mean, a god is a woman who comes into a marriage knowing that she's disrupting it and doesn't seem to think twice about that. It works with what she wants. Um, Martin is someone who has something and doesn't want to lose it. Once, uh, once, once, you know, is really frightened to lose his, uh, his position. So I guess it becomes, it seems to be about one, but it's also about all. One of the things that I think the film does is show us the world of people who have the quote unquote life of the mind. It shows us a boho, a bohemian world. And one of the ways that this world is conveyed is through these very, very interesting rooms. Mm. Um, you know, we're constantly seeing pictures and books. Uh, we hear music. There's an art poster, but it's not Picasso, it's Watteau. The rooms telegraph a certain kind of life mm -hmm. and a certain maybe even way of being in the world how do you as a filmmaker go about creating these rooms um well i'm in a, a apartment I, I could show you helen but the listeners i'll have to you know with paintings and photographs all over and books over there and and so in a way the films i make are are often about people who live in cult, in sort of a class similar to my own because I have uh, a more than enough things to draw from in my own experience and my own association. And I think um, in creating spaces, I'm 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 really thinking both about accuracy and pleasure. So accuracy meaning like try to make it seem like it has uh, a realism, like a level of realism. That is that is that feels full, and then on the pleasure side, I'm I'm willing to go beyond realism in order to make something that that becomes impactful cinematically. So so the clothes, not most of us could wear these clothes, but these these characters could. And and for example, with Agat, the the teacher played by Adele Exarchopoulos, there was a moment where we dressed her like a, a kind of average school teacher in Paris you might see on a subway, and then suddenly. I was watching Contempt and I was looking at um, Brigitte Bardot specifically and thinking like, well, we could also dress her like that. And, and we did. 
you know, she's, which, but you, you know, we hit right a line where somehow these characters pull it off without you, you noticing the unreal of this realism. Um, but her ma- hair and makeup is, is Bardot. Her right. body and her shape is Bardot, you know? And so I think there's this interesting thing trying to be accurate and also trying to be fun. I did think about Godard quite a bit in watching the film, especially on the second and third view where I had the luxury of pausing. There were certain compositions that actually reminded me of Babette Mangold's shooting of Jean Dillman. In these mise-en-scenes, these domestic spaces, I wondered, like, did you put the Vato poster there? Did you find a room that already had mm. a Vato poster? Like, I was curious about the degree of yeah. intentionality in building out those spaces. Well, you know, I recently thought if I had to describe, I, I got to say what I am, I'm a filmmaker, but actually what I, I would, if I was going to describe my art form, it would be collaboration. And so what you see is the result of conversation, is the result of decision-making, is the, is the result of instinct, which I try not to get in the way of, both with my actors and with my creative collaborators, my cinematographer. You know, I try to let people do the things they do well, um, and, and then we get somewhere together. Um, so like that apartment, which you're talking about, which is a Gotts apartment, the walls are, are nice. Like the room, the, the, the windows are there and we didn't build them, but we chose them. Um, and then we fill the room to some extent. So there's like an architecture which, which exists and then we, and then we define it. So certainly that Watteau or um, which is a clown was something we chose. I, you know, I really try to avoid doing anything that will be towards meaning. So the fact that it's a clown only after the film is done, does it seem like significant that it's a picture? So, you know, you're making choices. And what I've learned is, is to try less is more when it comes to, to set design. And also in terms of costume, meaning like if you get one thing that's really strong, and this is what Godard can teach you, you know, one, one strong red right. can make a room. You can use a lot of white if you have one strong red. And I think, and I learned that from collaboration also. I think you try to find spaces that come with a history that you, like you try to find actors. Like, like I didn't make Franz's notes. Right. Right. And I, and I didn't make a crack in the wall in an apartment on, and paint. Like I didn't, I don't go to the point where I'm trying to, to make things more um, age, but I, I, age gives you character, gives you narrative, gives you prose and description. Um, it's like a novel. Right. So the locations are paragraphs. Right. Right. That's beautiful. So I'm going to read a sentence to you that I read <clears throat> in an interview with you. You said, you're projecting your own extraordinary wants and feelings onto the screen. And the screen is projecting those significant feelings back at you, which does not happen in a Marvel movie. One of the things that I found that I was projecting onto the film is the difference between queer life and straight life. It seems to me as something the film explores, which is different ideas about honesty different Mm -hmm. ideas about how we comport ourselves ethically. Mm -hmm. So when Tomas first sleeps with Agath, he he bikes home and tells Martin he has done this. Mm -hmm. 
And when Agath confronts her boyfriend and her boyfriend says, have you done this? She mm. says, no, I have not. Mm. But I want to open up a, a space to, for you to talk about queer ethics and mm -hmm. queer arrangements mm -hmm. and what this film is saying about those arrangements mm -hmm. in relationship to how we are different than our mm -hmm. heterosexual siblings. Mm -hmm. Well, what, what comes to mind for me is that I would describe this film as is really, um, I think my first where nothing is hidden. Because if you, if I look back on my work um, before I was 40, every film was about what was hidden. Interesting. Until I was 40. Every film was about a relationship in which something was secret. And I came out at 16 or uh, in high school and I was out in college, but that didn't mean I didn't have very, very deep and powerful secrets, which I think is also the legacy of uh, gayness. I would almost say more than queerness for me. Like, I don't know if you as a lesbian woman would feel the same. Like, queer is an interesting term because it eludes, it hides a certain experience, which is also, I'm also a gay man. And my experience, my experience as a gay man was one of secrecy until, it, until I, my life burned up and then and then I would that wasn't possible for me anymore thank god and i think mm. this film displays a kind of uh transparency both in terms of of the characters which is what you're talking about but also in terms of the images right, right? and I, and i was definitely pushing myself to create images which were not discreet but basically and what kind of interesting because i'm talking about the fact that i think that i've transformed in terms of my relationship to, to honesty. And I think you're right. That has something to do with the possibility of what queer life looks like for me. But in terms of the images, I, I had to go back to Chantelle Ackerman in Jutu Elel, not Jean Dielman, but I had to go mm -hmm. back to her at 23, displaying her body and having right. sex on screen. And I had to go back to a movie called um, Taxi Zoom Clo, made by Frank Riplow in 1981 in Berlin, where the the, the director stars also as a gay, it's like a very uh, overt film. Like the images could not be made today. And I'm, and I find like now I'm working on something new and I'm scared as one is. And I'm just going like, but really these people who were the most open were the ones that I feel most liberated by, most excited by like, but it's, a, it's, it's both, fear, and also um, a wonderful challenge. And those are queer people. That's right. what you're, those are queer people. They're just, I'm not sure if I would say. I know what you mean about the word queer. I, I, yeah. I know what you mean about how the word can occlude the specificity of some experiences, even as it, you know, opens out onto a kind of position, perhaps in relationship to the world. I mean, I found myself thinking about Adrienne Rich and the lesbian discourse around radical honesty, that in uh -huh. order to survive the patriarchy and to right. sort of even come up with some sense of who you are within this, you know, white patriarchal construct, that honesty, you know, there's this moment in the 70s where women are like, you got to say it all, right? You have to speak this bitter truth. You have to you have to express everything in order to be real with each other, in order to be something ethical 
Well, I, what's funny is I think, you know, just a few days ago, someone described me in my personal life as like, oh, you know, you with your radical honesty. Like that was the word. And I didn't really know it as an Adrian Rich term. And, and, and I was like, radical honesty? How that's an interesting idea. What I think is, is very present in the film and what I think immediately is in this film and also I think sometimes in my life, Radical honesty is also a form of aggression, violence, patriarchy, brutalism. Like it's a lot of things that are that are not sweet and cozy and are also not fully and terribly complex and um, troubling as well. That being said, the projection part is that whatever anybody watched, I might have tried to avoid metaphor making the film, but the film is a metaphor. Right. It's how you read the metaphor which is right. the personal part. It's interesting to me that you said you and your writing partner wrote this towards the tail end of the Trump administration, because I did find Tomas to be a kind of allegory, a Trumpian mm -hmm. figure. Then I thought, oh, Martin and Aga, that's us. I thought was that the film was showing us how we are hurt and how scars form mm -hmm. and then how we take those wounds and scars mm -hmm. into everything else that happens. So the, the movie revealed for me not only how the hurts happen, but then how art or culture is partly reparative. It's partly there to salve the hurts, to soothe the wounds, but it is also there emanating from those wounds mm -hmm. simultaneously so that there's mm -hmm. this toggling back and forth between what is cause and what is effect. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I came away with was that the film showed me something very discomforting, which is that we are drawn to the Trumpian character. Mm -hmm. He is as repulsive as he is attractive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that the film implicated me in my own desire to be seduced, to be overwhelmed by this kind of character. And it, ended up just feeling like an incredible allegory for me mm -hmm. about this period that we're living through and that perhaps we may be living through again mm -hmm. um, with this turn towards the authoritarian and this mm -hmm. turn towards the narcissist. You know, it's, I don't talk about it very much because it, because it makes the film seem maybe too of the moment. But to me, it's less about the narcissism of a character like that. It's more about the power that that character mm. gives anyone who's in his orbit. But what I was going to say to what you just said is even though I wouldn't have been able to write that allegory, um, I made it and I hope to make movies that kind of release those different thoughts. So, so somehow what, what it kind of moved me was the idea that the film is both full of pain and also a release of pain because it exists. And that to me seems to be exquisite anguish in the making. I hope for something that's more abstract and unspoken and that's, well, you know, whether it's libidinal or erotic or associative. So, but I hope to make the movie you described. So, so that's a good <laughs> thing. And I guess I did, you know, because you described it. Um, I want to say that there's something that for me was very conscious is that God is not from the same class as these two men. And, and that's really significant in, in how I felt of the construction of the film. And I thought a lot about actually, there's a scene towards the end of the movie and she, she's invited into this 
very lovely home where all these very lovely people are and they sing and they have good meals and she's there. And to me, that scene is a horror movie. Mm. Ultimately, you're like, get out of the house, get out of there. Because white men with money are dangerous, right. whether they're gay or straight. And, and, and I thought, and, and I don't mean to be pointing fingers, I, I'm, I am that person. And, but I'm just saying there's some violence in the male world that she enters, which is more like their maleness trumps their queerness. They're guys. Mm. And I thought about Fox and his friends, which is the Fassbender film about a working class guy played by Fassbender, who's kind of adopted by this couple and ultimately ends up dead on the floor. And, right. and that's the movie I was thinking about, really, which is like, she's either going to die or she's going to escape. Mm -hmm. One of the things I really loved about Passages um, was that I think you make films, and you've done this before, about art and intellectual life that are not, that are not a caricature. When people say it's not a character, that just means I did an okay job. Right, like I, I'm not aiming to to make a character, dude. Apparently, making good films is hard because you know, I mean, I couldn't help but think about passages in relationship to Tar, and of course, I did not like Tar, and I found the way my certain tent poles of my life and my identity were played for laughs and or horror really despicable and made me very, very angry in the movie. And I, passages, here's a movie about these crazy three people who are all hungry and hurting each other in various ways. And it's one of the very few movies I've seen in the past few years where I didn't have to suspend whole parts of myself in order to watch the film. Like mm -hmm. I actually felt like I could be my whole self, which is a ridiculous phrase, but I think you know what I mean. Like I could, I could be there. I didn't have to turn off the gay part of me or the, the progressive part of me or the art world part of me or the ethical part of me. I didn't have to suspend anything so that I could watch the film. I could just watch the film. Mm -hmm. And I, I read that you're doing an adaptation of Peter Hujar's Day by mm -hmm. Linda Rosencrantz. And I was so happy when I read you were doing this because I thought you're the person who knows how to somehow make images and films about the lives that we lead in this is the mm -hmm. art world the cultural world that don't make me cringe when i see mm -hmm. them on the screen mm. i think the reason i respond so strongly when people say oh you didn't make a cliched film is like i'm up against my heroes who are my monsters who are better than me so i'm comparing myself not to people who are worse than me i'm comparing myself to pilat i'm comparing myself to godard and i'm never going to succeed I'm aiming higher and I will fail, but that's like, so, so in my mind, you got to aim really high. And I think actually Claire Massage, it was the person when we were like 17 years old, I'd be like, I'm not going to try to be great. I'm just going to try to be good. And she's like, why not try to be great? Why not try? Artists are not artists. It's to me more if the director or filmmaker thinks in any moment that they're better than the people they're depicting, then you're in trouble. Then the, then the depth goes out the window. Mm. What you did there was put, I would argue, a kind of ethics on the table, right? That you you don't look down on your subjects. Um, you described yourself as a collaborator, not a filmmaker, but, you know, like a collaborator. And you make these films in which the complexity of 
people's lives is allowed to remain as complex um, as it actually is. And to me, these all three of these attributes speak to ethics. And, and I would turn that word ethics and I would say artistic ambition, because I think ethics implies a morality, which I'm not saying I have no morality, but I'm not driven like any, no more than anyone else am I driven by morality. I'm driven by want. And my want is to make something great. You have to keep going and you have to keep understanding. And your job is to understand more and more. I just saw Anatomy of a Fall, which I, I really recommend. And whatever anyone thinks of the movie, what I, what I felt was sort of what you're describing, you felt in Passages. And when I was watching Anatomy of a Fall, I thought, I think this is what I would have thought about Passages. Is this is a mature movie. These right. are, and it's, a, and it's, a, it's, got a, it's a movie with depth. And, and this is a pretty rigorous questioning of, of life and narrative. And I'm just so grateful for the depth, you know, right. and that's maybe for various reasons, mostly economic and related to capitalism. And, and I think a lot of the problem is very few people get to make eight movies, 10 movies because of the economics. So they don't get better. Like I feel this film is a film that was made of someone who's been doing this for 35 years. And that's really hard in this industry. So then you can go back to white male privilege. I'm the one doing it, right? Right, right. So I think um, queerness, God, I don't know. I just saw Black Lips at the Museum of Modern Art, and this is Anoni's performance cult from 1991, and I was just like so damn inspired by queerness, which to me is risk-taking, and, 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 and it's – why I'm looking to the East Village, Peter Hujar, Arthur Russell, these people who I'm, I'm engaged with now, is because they, they, they failed in terms of capitalism, but, they, but somehow they won almost because of the same reason. 100%. Well, I'm really looking forward to your Peter Hujar movie. And, um, you know, you're one of those filmmakers now. I'll, I'll go and see anything you make. So keep failing. It's working <laughs> for you. Thank you, Helen. What a pleasure. Thank you so much, Ira. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. If you like this episode, please follow, rate, and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It really does help the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you join us here next time.